and thank you, Luke. If you have your copy of God's Word, take it out and turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This year has been a year that has been filled with uh, loss. We look around at the world, we look around at what COVID has done, we look around at the division politically, even in our own nation. We look around the last few weeks at what's been going on in Afghanistan. We look at our brothers and sisters there that we are praying for that are currently experiencing persecution and um, almost certain death. But this year has also been one of great loss for us corporately as a church. There are church families around us think of our our brother Mark Rodriguez who passed away. Some of Redemption families even here with us this morning. I think of the loss that was experienced by his family, his church family. Just this last week, Yasmin's grandma passed away. Just yesterday, Christy's stepdad passed away. Our dear brother John Fireisen passed away about a month ago, and today uh, was actually the day that was going to be his memorial service that had to be uh, moved. And then this last week, our dear brother Brian, who we've been praying for for a long time, closed his eyes in this life and opened his eyes in the presence of Jesus. It's been a year that's been filled with loss, with grief, with trying to process death. We don't like to do that. We don't like to think about death, but it is absolutely imperative that we do. We've been faced for over a year now with our own mortality. We know that we are not invincible. And then death finds its way to our own doorsteps, to our own households, to our own family members, to our loved ones. How are we to feel in these moments? Even though we don't like thinking about these moments, the Bible actually says it's good for us to think about these moments. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says it's better to go to a funeral than it is to go to a party or a wedding because the funeral is where all of us will end up. That's the end of every human life. So this morning, I I want to take a break from our study in Revelation to just meditate on death. I want us to meditate on grief. I want us to meditate on sorrow. I want us to meditate on loss, and I want us to meditate on hope. What are we to take to heart this morning that Solomon in Ecclesiastes would say? As you stare at death, there's something you're to take to heart. What are we supposed to learn from in these situations? I think 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 will begin our time as we meditate on death, grief, sorrow, and hope in and through it all. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. 
For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, we long to comfort one another with these words. We long for your grace to be felt. Your peace that surpasses all understanding to be known deeply in our souls. God, we want to We want to understand death the way you understand death. We want to understand grief and sorrow the way you understand grief and sorrow. And we want to understand and realize the hope that you have offered through Jesus. So, Father, do do something in this moment, in this hour. Do something in our hearts That would truly be inexplicable, that there would be no way to describe how you worked a miracle in our souls that gave us this this unbelievable sense of brokenhearted joy, that we can have hope in the midst of grief, that we can be grieving and with tears in our eyes be smiling because of the hope that we have. God, you can do that in our midst. You can do that in our hearts. And I just, I think about our church family and for the majority of us who knew our dear brother Brian, who were ministered to by him, I think of the, the sorrow and the grief as we processed not being able to see him again, not being able to say hi to him again, not being able to sing with him again. I just remember singing, standing next to him at every shepherd's conference, singing with him. And he won't be there. And it is good for us to think of these things, to process these things, and to say, God, it hurts. And in the hurt, there is hope. Father, there are those in our church family who have recently joined, and so they didn't know Brian that well. And God, I know that there are those in their own lives, with their families, their loved ones. They know precious saints that have gone on to be with you. And if they don't, they will. Because, as Solomon wrote, this is the end of every human. This is where we all go. We all go to death. Death is inevitable. So, Father, there is so much that I am pleading with you to do in our midst. I want you to bring comfort. I want you to bring hope. I also, I pray that you would bring an unsettledness to any hearts in this room that don't know you, they would realize they don't have any hope. They would realize death is their enemy and they will not be in paradise if they do not turn to you today. So, Father, I, I, I ask truly for the impossible. Work in such a way that we can only describe it as you working. And do that not because of anything that we've done to earn or deserve it. Do it because you are gracious, you are merciful, you are a kind God. So we give you 
these next few moments. I give you these meditations that I've been thinking through, and I ask that you would multiply them like the loaves and the fish in a way that we would look in awe at what you've done. We love you and we pray it in your name. Amen. This morning, I, I want us to meditate. I want to I look at six different truths that come from meditating on death, that come from meditating on sorrow and grief, that come from meditating on the hope that we have in our death. So six different truths, and there are so many more that we could go to, but I, I pray that this will cover a lot that we are experiencing together this morning. Truth number one, as we stare at death, as we are surrounded by loss, the truth that presents us first and foremost right off the bat, we sang it even in the last song that we sang, truth number one, we do not know how long we have. We do not know how long we have. We are, as the song said, a mist that vanishes at dawn. James chapter four, verse 14. I'm gonna just quote a lot of verses. We'll turn to a few of them together, but I'm gonna quote a lot. You don't have to turn there. You can just write them down for future study. James chapter four, verse 14 says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's where that line from the song came from. Proverbs 27 verse one says, do not boast about tomorrow because you don't know what a day is going to bring. You don't know how much more time you're going to have. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We have been given graciously by God the gift of today, but we don't know if we're gonna be given tomorrow. C.T. Studd, who was born in the late 1800s, he was a British missionary to China and later was responsible for setting up the Heart of Africa mission, which became worldwide evan the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade to Africa. He wrote a poem and in this poem, many of you know this poem, in this poem, he describes how not knowing what tomorrow will bring must change the way we view today, must change the way we view our lives. He writes this, and I'm just going to read a few stanzas. It's a very long poem. You can uh, look it up on your own time. C.T. Studd, only one life will soon be passed. That's a, it's a beautiful poem. Here's a few stanzas. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, a brief few years, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears, each with its clays that I must fulfill, living for self or in his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. In joy or sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life shall soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I know I'll say, twas worth it all. Only one life shall soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. How is the lamp of your life burning? Is it burning for Christ? 
We don't know how much time we're going to have left. One poet said it this way, when I was a child, I laughed and wept, time crept. When as a youth, I dreamt and talked, time walked. When I became a full-grown man, time ran. When older still, I daily grew, time flew. Soon I shall be traveling on, time gone. We're not guaranteed tomorrow. We don't know when God will take us. Let's think about this with me. The average lifespan, this is from a few years ago, the average lifespan in America was 77 years old. 77 years old. So if you're 15 years old, you have 22,630 days left. You have 744 months left. If you're 25 years old, you have 624 months left. If you're 35 years old, you have 504 months left. If you're 45 years old, you have 384 months left. If you're 55 years old, you have 264 months left. If you're 65 years old, you have 144 months left. And if you're 75 years old and you live to the average lifespan of 77, you have 24 months left. Time is quickly going by. And as we look at death, one of the first truths that instantly is preached to us by the grim reaper, so to speak, is the reality of we are not guaranteed tomorrow. And we better redeem the time now. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16 say, Be, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Are you making the most of your time? Are you living your life for Christ? Are you burning out for him? Not burning out in a sense of I'm exhausted and I can't make it anymore, but you're living on his energy, on his grace, and you're burning before everyone else to show them the glory of Jesus. I was thinking about our dear brother. Brian had just turned 54 years old. Brian had just turned 54 years old. And you think about making the most of your time. That's exactly what Brian did. Brian did more in 54 years for the cause of Christ than most people do in twice that amount of time. I mean, he gave his all to show people that Jesus is worthy of all of their affection. Are you making the most of your time? John Piper said it this way, if there is only one life to live in this world, and if it's not meant to be wasted, then nothing more can, nothing can be more important to us than finding out exactly what God really means in his word and living according to it. Jonathan Edwards, in his resolutions that we discussed a few weeks ago, Resolved, number five, this is resolution number five. Resolved that I would never lose one moment of time, but I improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution number six, resolved to live with all of my might while I do live. Resolution number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. And resolution number 22, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all of the power, might, vigor, vehemence, and yes, violence I am capable of. And bring myself to exert in any way that can be thought of. I want to do whatever it takes to be the happiest I can be in heaven. And I want to live for that moment. 
Jonathan Edwards lived with an eternal perspective, knowing that life was a vapor. And our brother Brian did as well. And they are both preaching to us today. Death is a, it's a sermon that ceases. We don't know how much time we're going to have. Number two, the second truth that death preaches to us as we meditate on it. Number two, we grieve because of the loss. We grieve because of the loss. Number one, we don't know how much time that we have. We don't know how long we have left. And number two, when we lose someone whom we love dearly, we grieve. Notice back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says, we don't want you to be uninformed, verse 13, about those who are asleep. That's a uh, a Christian euphemism for death, for they're, they're not here. They passed on, they're, they're dead. Those who are dead, I don't want you to be un, uninformed, Paul says, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. The, the, a literal way of saying this is so that in your grieving, you don't grieve without hope like the others do. So what he's saying is you will grieve. You're just going to grieve differently. You're going to grieve differently than the world. The world grieves in a separate, different way because they have no hope. But you as believers grieve differently. It is not saying, and I've heard some people say this before, it's not saying that we don't grieve because we're believers. That somehow because we're believers and we have such an overwhelming hope that we don't need to grieve at all. I don't think, number one, that that's what this text says. I don't think that's, number two, the tone of the Bible. And I don't think that that's correct. We grieve. Now, everyone's going to grieve differently, but we're all going to grieve. It's right to grieve because something that we loved and held dear was taken from us. It could be a person. It could be a situation in life. It could be a lost job that I know some of you have dealt with, not being able to find a job, not being able to find a house. It could be a, a dear pet. I remember sitting with Brian just down here, drive down Lashen, in and out, right down here. It was a Sunday after church, and I drove with Brian right after, I think it was probably his favorite pet, Roxy, died. And I remember I just gave him a big hug, got a burger with him, and I said, how are you doing? And he said, I can't stop crying can't stop crying and he said I feel really dumb that I can't stop crying because I know it's just a dog I remember just in that moment saying oh not dumb God gave you an amazing gift and that time is over and it's sad to lose what you love We all grieve, but this text says we grieve with hope, and we share that hope with one another. We comfort each other. Just write down Romans chapter 12, verse 15. You know this verse. We are commanded to rejoice with those who rejoice and then to weep with those who weep. We say a lot at church here that if you know enough people, you will always be rejoicing and always be weeping. If you know enough people, you will always be rejoicing and you will always be weeping. But I, I want to remind you, God weeps with you. Psalm 56, verse 8, God holds all of the tears that we have cried in a bottle. 
He's not going to command you to do something that he himself isn't going to do. So if he says, hey, you need to weep with those who weep, he's going to weep with us too. And he does. He holds our tears in a bottle. He knows when you are brokenhearted. He knows when you're crying. He comforts those who are mourning. Turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. You know this passage. This is where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. You remember Mary and Martha contact Jesus and say, please come, the one that you love. Lazarus is sick. He's dying. Please come and heal him. You remember Jesus stays, purposefully stays later so that Lazarus will in fact die so that Jesus can raise him from the dead. Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. If you go to verse 21, Martha says to Jesus, once Jesus arrives in Bethany, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that, and she's believing about the resurrection to come. I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day, but Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still at the place where Martha met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come see. And Jesus wept. As he sees Mary coming, weeping, he doesn't say to her, don't weep. I'm going to raise your brother from the dead. He doesn't say, don't weep. Your brother's safe in the arms of the father. He doesn't say, stop weeping. He sees her weeping and he starts weeping. In fact, the word for wept is a word not just for crying out of sorrow, but a sense of such deep anguish in your heart that you're roaring. Sometimes it can be used in, in, a, in a context of a lion roaring. There's something not right. You can't look at that moment and say, it'll be okay. Jesus wept. He was troubled. He was deeply moved. Brothers and sisters, we need to be deeply moved when we see our brothers and sisters going through loss. It's good to grieve. It's right to grieve. We all do it differently. We all process differently. Don't tell someone they have to process the way you're processing. Don't tell someone their way of processing is wrong. But when 
when you see your brother or sister dealing with loss, weep with them the way that Jesus wept with Mary and with Martha over the loss of Lazarus. Truth number one, we don't know how long we have. Truth number two, we grieve because of the loss. Truth number three, when we look at death, we grieve because of the loss, which leads us really to this third point, which comes straight out of 1 Corinthians 15. Death, point number three, death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul had planted this little church in Corinth. He would shepherd and lead it for only about 18 months. And a few years later on, his third missionary journey, he would be leaving in Ephesus. Uh, He'd be going to Ephesus. He would send Timothy back to Corinth to check on them, to answer all of their questions, whatever they would have. In another letter that Paul wrote to them that we actually don't even have, it's really the first Corinthians. Paul wrote one letter that we don't have, and many wrote what we have as first Corinthians, which is technically the second Corinthians. In the first one that he wrote, he had apparently explained the basics of the gospel, and they had corresponded with him to say, great, but we have all these questions. Here in this second letter, which is our first Corinthians, he's seeking to answer all the questions that they have. He starts with the gospel, but then chapter 7 all the way on into the rest of the book is just him answering whatever questions they had. And of all the questions that they had, the one that receives the most amount of ink is the topic of death. Chapter 15 is the longest chapter in all of the epistles. And in chapter 15, verse 22, Paul writes, all, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are, are Christ that is coming, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death is an enemy. Death is an enemy because death steals. It takes away. It's also an enemy because it enslaves. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15 says this, Therefore, Since the children share in flesh and blood, since we as humans share in flesh and blood, Christ himself likewise also partook of the same. He became flesh and blood. So that through death, he had to be flesh and blood in order to die. God can't die, so Jesus had to become human, fully God, fully human. So that through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. Through fear of death, death being our enemy, we were subject to slavery all of our lives. We're subject to slavery and death because no matter what we do, no matter how hard we we try, we have no control over it. It's still coming for us. Death is a kind of slavery because there's nothing that we can do about it. It just reigns over us and we will die. We tend to view this life as kind of a, a savings account where the future just promises you more and you're gaining and you're gaining You're gaining assets, you're expanding your education, you're gaining family, you're gaining more hobbies, you're gaining more houses, you're gaining more friends. So we tend to view life as we're just gaining, we're putting more into the savings account. But the reality is because of death, life works in the exact opposite. Life is really a a savings account in reverse. You're spending down, you're not saving up because everything that you gain in this life will be lost one day. 
That's why Paul says death is an enemy. Death is an enemy. It's not natural. It wasn't the way things were supposed to be. I know that it's now the natural course of life, but we are living in a course that, uh, in a, a life that's been filled with a curse. So this wasn't the natural intent of God in the Garden of Eden. We're going to eat from the tree of life and live forever. It's not the way that things should be. It is the way that things are, but it's not the way that they should be. And that's why Romans 8 says that we groan inwardly for something different because this is not the way it should be. And that's why in Revelation, God's going to come back and he's going to declare no more death because that's the way it should be. I, I think that we can struggle with this as believers. We focus on the hope, which praise the Lord, we have hope. But we focus on the hope so much and only on the hope that maybe we fail to grieve and maybe we fail to see that death really is an enemy, that it really is unnatural. I'm guilty of this myself, where I can talk so flippantly about death as if it's no big deal because for believers we're in heaven, so no big deal. No, it is a big deal. It's always a big deal because it's an enemy. It's not natural. It's not right. It's not the right order of how God designed the universe. We messed it up with our sin. And the reality is because, because death is in this world, truly looking at the end of our lives, looking at the fact that everything we gain, everything we do, every accomplishment that we try to live out is just going to end. Most likely we won't be remembered. Most likely there will only be a handful of people that know that we even died. The reality of death preaching this morning and death preaching every day and the Grim Reaper bringing a message here this morning is that life, because of death, truly is hopeless. Life, because of death, truly is hopeless. first three points lead us to a place of well, what's the point of it all what's the point if we're all going to die if there's going to be an end and it's it's loss and it's grief and it's sorrow and there's truly no hope and i would say amen and amen and actually ecclesiastes that's the whole point of ecclesiastes ecclesiastes is a book where solomon says life has no point it's hopeless meaningless purely painful and there's zero reason to be living it and then the very end, just a tiny little paragraph. Oh, but there's another life. There's another life that makes everything in this life filled with satisfaction and hope. Take away the other life. This life has zero meaning. It's vanity of vanities. It's pointless. But throw in that other life, that next life, that eternal life. And now we can live life backwards, live life with an eternal perspective and realize everything that we do in this life not only has hope, not only satisfies, not only matters, but has purpose in everything we do, has purpose in everything we do. And so that's why, yes, number one, we don't know how long we have. Number two, we grieve because of the loss. Number three, death is an enemy, but that leads us to point number four. As we meditate on death, Christ has conquered death. Christ has conquered death. 
back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching's in vain. Your faith is in vain. Moreover, we're even to be found to be liars, false, false witnesses, because we said that he was raised from the dead, but he wasn't. Verse 16, if the dead have not been raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Just like we talked about the first fruits in Revelation, right? The 144,000 are first fruits because they get saved and more are going to get saved after them. So too, Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. He was raised from the dead. Now, you, you might say, wait, there were other people raised before him. Yes, there were. Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, other people raised before him. But nobody had been raised before Jesus who then never died, right? Lazarus was raised from the dead and then died. Jairus' daughter was raised from the dead. Widow's son at Nain was raised from the dead and then died. Jesus was raised from the dead, never to die again. And he is the first fruits of all who trust in him because we too will be raised from the dead, never to die again, never to experience that second death in hell. For since by a man came death, by Christ, a human, also came the resurrection of the dead. Turn to verse 50. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. We will not all be changed, but uh, we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. We'll be changed. Paul says we're all going to have to be changed because our perishable bodies are going to die and cannot exist for all of eternity in heaven. They can't experience the glory of God or else they're going to die. So we need to be changed. Verse 51, he says, we're not all going to sleep because there's going to be a certain group of people who don't die in this life. They're raptured. They're um, changed in the twinkling of an eye. But this last week and these last few months, we've experienced several of our dear loved ones who have fallen asleep in this life. I just, I love that word. Jesus uses it. Speaks of Lazarus. He's, he's sleeping. He's sleeping. He's, he's not dead. He's sleeping. Uses it in Mark chapter 5 with Jairus' daughter. He walks in. She's died. And he says, she hasn't died. She's just asleep. Why use this word sleep as a metaphor for death? It's just, it's because it's a perfect picture for believers. It's painless. Effortless, instantaneous. It's in a moment. We had the privilege this summer of taking a few weeks off and we were driving all over the place and one of the places we went for a whole day was SeaWorld and stayed there very, very, very late and got into the car and my wife and, always, my, my wife and I always ask, you know, how long is it going to take before the kids just knock out? And as we're driving, I think, you know, before we even get to the freeway, they're going to be out. And sure enough, before we even get to the freeway, they're gone. They're all asleep, and they're just the cutest things to look at when they're sleeping. And we get home and um, unbuckle them. They're big enough now. They don't have to be in those 
huge car seats where you're trying to get their arm around. It's like Houdini trying to get out of this thing. Like, okay, you're okay, and I have to dislocate your arm, but you'll be fine. And you get them all out, push the seatbelt now, click, good, lift them up. And they kind of wake up, kind of roll their eyes back, and they're okay, and then we get to put them in bed. For our kids, they went to sleep in the parking lot of SeaWorld, and then they woke up in their bed. How cool is that, right? I wish that would happen to me. I just want to fall asleep here. I preach, I fall asleep, I wake up in my bed. Somebody take me home. <laughs> they had very little experience of, of that transport at all. I mean, maybe they just opened their eyes while they were driving and then went back to sleep. But that period of sleep was really non-existent, a non-existent experience for them. They didn't even know that it happened. And the same is true for believers. We close our eyes in this life as if we just are falling asleep. And then we wake up the transport having already taken place in heaven. Our Heavenly Father will just move us to the next world. Death is like sleep with absolutely nothing to fear for those who trust in Jesus. And then Paul says in verse 54, but when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sin? Death is an enemy, as Paul wrote in verse 26. It takes and it takes and it takes and it leaves only pain. But then Paul goes on to say, because Christ has been raised and because he has conquered death, we don't have anything to fear. We don't have anything to fear. Death has no sting for believers. Death has no victory over the children of God. Jesus has conquered death, and so it has no sting, and we get to triumph with Christ. Paul quotes Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, that death is swallowed up in victory. Notice the beautiful irony. Don't miss it. Death's appetite is never satisfied. Death keeps on taking people and is never satisfied. Okay, enough people have died. No more need to die. It devours everything, and it devours everything from everyone. But Jesus has devoured death. So death has no more hold on believers. Death is an imposter. It's wielded by an enemy who has already been conquered. And that's why Paul also quotes from Hosea chapter 13, verse 14, that death's stinger has been removed. There's no more pain in death because death's sting has been removed. In Christ, just like John Owen says, which as I was thinking through some of these quotes and some of these people, like Jonathan Edwards, John Owen, John Calvin, and R.C. Sproul. I am I'm confident that Brian has had many discussions with them already. They were his favorite authors. They were his favorite preachers. And as I was seeing this, John Owen wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Jesus. What if Brian got to heaven and said, you're right, John. Death's gone. No sting. No victory for death. It's lost because we're in glory with Jesus. 
and there's nothing that can take us out of his hand. R.C. Sproul said it this way, for the believers, death never has the last word. Death is surrendered to the conquering power of the one who was resurrected as the firstborn of many brethren. Jesus tasted death for us so that we don't ever have to be afraid of being held by it. Our problem is death, right? Death is a problem. But Jesus, in his death, gave us a promise. A victory that had been promised so long ago. In Genesis 3, that, that God would crush the serpent's head and bring about salvation for all who would believe in him. For believers, we don't need to fear death. But the implication in 1 Corinthians 15 is that for non-believers, you must fear death. You should fear death. Death is a very real threat for non-believers. Why? Go to verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. God's law is perfect. Holiness is the standard. That's what you must be in order to get to heaven on your own. We've all fallen short of that standard. Just If I were just to ask you, have you ever in your life felt guilty? We would all say, yes, we felt guilty. That means that your conscience has borne witness uh, to the law of God written on your heart that you have done things that are wrong. We've all done things that are wrong. We all know that. We've suppressed the knowledge of God. We are guilty under the law. And therefore, we are sinners. We are sinners. Sin rules over us. Sin is our master if we are not saved. And the proof that we all are sinners is that we die. That's what God said to Adam and Eve. Once you decide to sin and go against me and go against my rules, you will surely die. Death was, again, not originally the plan in Eden. But because of our sin, death entered. So what gives sin the power to destroy us is the law. The law says, do this and you'll live. Don't do this and you'll die. That's why Ezekiel says, the soul who sins will die. And it always goes this way. It always goes this way. It's really experienced in reverse. The law, sin, death. The law, sin, death. We have the law, we break the law, we die. We have the law, we break the law, we die. It goes that way for every single human for all of time until someone comes along and breaks that terrible standard. Look at Jesus Christ. Look at what he did. He came as one. Why, did, why does Paul say born under the law? Because that's a part of the chain. Law, sin, death. Law, sin, death. Jesus was born under the law. He had to live under the law. And he died under the law. But that middle part of the chain was broken. Because he never sinned once in his entire life. And then at the cross, God the Father took all of our sin and put it on him as if he had lived that middle chain of sin under the law. So that the Father could treat you and me as if we had never lived that middle chain. Jesus is born under the law. Jesus dies under the law, never once having sinned. So he breaks this terrible pattern. He breaks the chain. Galatians 3, 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He was born under the law. He never sinned. He died under the law. And then he added a piece to that sin. He took out sin. He bore sin for us. He gave us righteousness. And then he added one final piece. He rose from the dead. He declared on Good Friday, it is finished. And God the Father declared on Resurrection Sunday, yes, it is. This is paid in full. Atonement made for any who would place their trust in him. So if you're here this morning and you believe in Jesus Christ, you love him, you follow him, you know that you are under the law, a sinner condemned to die, not only in this life, but in the next life, then you know Jesus has taken that chain of sin away from you, has given you his righteousness, and now offers you eternal life. But if you're here this morning and you do not know that, you might even believe that Jesus is real, that he did die on a cross. Maybe you even believe that he rose from the dead, but it's kind of a take it or leave it. I'm not going to give my entire life to him. I'm going to try things my way. I enjoy my sin. I enjoy my autonomy. I don't want to submit to him. If you're here this morning and you have not submitted to Christ, you have not bowed the knee to him, then your chain is still those three links. You are under the law. You have sinned and death, not only in this life, but the next life is yours. You are in a perilous situation. And since we aren't promised tomorrow, you might stand before God tonight. And if you're not covered in the righteousness of Christ, then you will experience hell for all of eternity. Jesus died for you. Jesus did not stay dead for you. Jesus offers you salvation. Please come to him today. This is why death has lost its sting. This is why there's no need to fear death anymore because Jesus conquered Death, just like Jesus said in John 11, whoever believes in me, though he dies, he'll never die. He'll live forever. I love the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. It opens with this question. What is our only comfort in life and in death? I love that question because any comfort that is in life only but doesn't comfort you in death is no real comfort at all. If the object of our hope cannot stand up for, to, for, uh, for death, to what death means, if the object of what we love and hope in is ultimately destroyed because of death, then it's no hope at all because we're all going to die. The dust, as we meditate on it, helps frame the question, what is our hope in life and in death? What can we hope in in death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all of my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's our only hope in life and in death, that we belong to Jesus. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ 
and then to die is gain. Notice how beautiful of a statement that is. I think most non-believers would flip it around, right? To live is for me, gain, whatever I can gain. Life is about gaining and accumulating. And then death is about whatever the Bible says somewhere in heaven someday. Paul says the opposite. To live is Christ. Everything that I do in the here and now is to display Christ, to enjoy Christ, to be satisfied by Christ. And then to die is gain because I get more of him. Just think about that. Everything that you lose in this life when you die and just put Jesus on the other side of the scale. Everything that you lose in this life on one side and then just Jesus. And it just completely throws everything up. It's gain. John Piper says, death is a threat only to the degree that it frustrates your goals and your greatest desires. Death is fearful to the degree that it threatens to rob you of what you value most. But Paul valued Christ most. He looked at death and he didn't see it as a frustration. He saw it as an occasion for the fulfillment of his highest value, that Christ would be magnified. We will magnify Christ in our dying precisely to the degree that we believe that fellowship with him in heaven is more to be preferred than any person or anything in this earth. When we come to the hour when everything will be taken away from us but Christ, we will magnify him by saying, in Christ I have everything and even more. That's why Paul says in Philippians 1, 22 and 23, I long to depart and be with Christ. I love his grammar. He says, for that is very much better. He's just trying to stack words together to say it's the best thing in the world. That leads to the last two points very quickly. So we have number one, as we meditate on death, we don't know how long we have. Number two, we grieve because of the loss. It's right to do so. Number three, death is an enemy. It's a very real enemy and it hurts. But number four, Christ has defeated death. And as we think about our loved ones who have gone to be with Jesus, number five, believers are made alive in Christ. Believers are made alive in Christ. We already read it in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me give you a couple other passages. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Fall asleep in this life, open your eyes in the next one instantly. Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. I think about Jesus talking to the Sadducees in Mark chapter 12 uh, on Tuesday of the Passion Week. Remember, they bring him that ridiculous question. The woman's married to seven different guys over the course of her life. They all die. Who is she married to in the resurrection? And he says, she's not married to anybody because we're all married to Christ in the resurrection. If you're a believer, you're married to him. We're not married to each other, humans to humans in the resurrection. And then he says, by the way, you're Sadducees. You don't even believe there's a resurrection. And so I'll prove to you by the scriptures that it's a fact. And you remember where he goes. He goes to the burning bush. He goes to God the Father saying, I am. He speaks to Moses through the burning bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was. Though they died in this life, they are very much alive. I am their God. And they are alive in Christ, with Christ. He's the God of the living, not the dead. D.L. Moody said it this way. Someday you'll read in the papers that D.L. Moody of Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment, I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone higher. That's all. Out of this old clay slum, 
into a house that is immortal, a body that sin could never touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned into his glorious body. I was born in the flesh in 1837. I was born in the spirit in 1856. And that which is born of the flesh can die, but that which is born of the spirit will live forever. Our brother Brian is very much alive. Our brother John is very much alive. We celebrate that believers are made alive in Christ, but still... We need one last point to give us the full circle of hope. We don't know how long we have. We grieve because of the loss. Death is an enemy. Christ has defeated death. And believers are made alive in Christ. Amen and amen. But point number six, and I want us to finish in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Just one beautiful phrase. Finally, point number six. We will be reunited again. Never to be separated. We will, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will see Brian again and you will never be separated from him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will see John again and you will never be separated from him. That's why we've talked about this so many times at our church. We see our, our dear friends, Josh and Tammy moving and I'm guessing we're gonna see them uh, even though they're moving to Arizona, they'll come back every once in a while to visit. They'll see their family, we'll see them again. But even if we never saw them again in this life, we can say, it's okay. Go. Be ministers. Be ambassadors for the gospel. Be evangelists. Be faithful disciple makers. Go, because there's coming a day when we're going to be reunited and never, ever again separated. That's why we can gladly rejoice in the Turners leaving our church. Those of you who got to see them, you realize that was so painful for us to have to say goodbye to them. But it's okay, because we know we'll be reunited again. Verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them, those who have already died, and believers who are already with Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here's the phrase. And so we, all believers together, will always be with the Lord. Always. Believers who die in this life will always be with the Lord, never to be separated again. Do you have a very much better desire, like Paul, to be with the Lord? I know over the course of this week, man, I just long to be with Jesus. I long to be in heaven. You will not long to be in heaven. You will not have a very much better desire like Paul to be with the Lord unless you treasure Christ. And you will not treasure Christ if you don't know him. So please, if you don't know him, don't leave today until you do. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so profound and so precious and brings comfort to our souls. We have seen the hopelessness that death brings. We've stared at the sorrow and the despair and the grief, and we've even tasted it ourselves. We've felt it. But we've also seen that the conqueror has risen, that Jesus Christ has 
defeated death once and for all who would trust in him. He has done the work that we could never do for ourselves. He has broken that chain and given us a new one. We're under the law that we have sinned. We can get that sin given to Jesus through the gospel, and we can get Jesus' righteousness given to us, and we inherit eternal life only because of Jesus. So we praise him. We love him. We're thankful for him. We're thankful that we will see our brother Brian, our brother John, and so many who have gone before us. We think of our brother, Pastor Mark, who is currently in heaven with Jesus. We will see him again as well. We will see all of our loved ones who who know you and who love you. We'll see them again. Until that day, make us faithful, knowing there's coming a day when nothing will separate us. Make us faithful. Give us hope and comfort. Comfort these families, precious families that we love so much. Help us to weep with them, to mourn with them, to love them the way that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, and then to go together to the hope of the resurrection, which we have in Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name for his glory. Amen.